0: hello and welcome the name of this podcast series is taboo truths and tales so why these particular t words are all in the title you may may want to know fair question it's because this podcast deals with subject matter considered to be taboo this podcast deals with a person's perception of truths And this podcast deals with storytelling tales of fiction told by an individual. You need to choose for yourself what you perceive as truths versus tales, because very often in real life, that distinction is not crystal clear. This podcast is marked Explicit. What that means, you should not listen to this podcast if you happen to be under the age of 18 or if someone under age 18 is listening there with you. Explicit means nobody under age 18 should be listening to this podcast series. So here we go taboo truths and tales is hosted by Madeira de souza that's me some of you may know me by my nickname as woody whatever you want to call me i welcome you here to this podcast which is definitely intended for people who are 18 or older thank you now let's get started Those of you that know me IRL in real life probably don't need an explanation as to the validity of what I'm going to talk about in this podcast episode. Um, But it is something of a subject that I have personal experience with, and that's the whole point of why I am sharing this with you. Instead of interviewing somebody, I am just going to talk honestly as I can, as honestly as I can, as openly as I can, I and I hope to reveal um, taboo truths, and maybe I will even get into some taboo tales, but um, the uh, subject for this podcast episode, the topic that I claim expertise or at least experience or connection with the topic homicide yeah homicide now what does it mean what does the word mean the word homicide if you just look it up in any dictionary anywhere online uh, in a book or however you want to look it up homicide the word means when one human being causes the death of another. Now it is not uh, in the legal sense, that was just the definition, it is not in the legal sense necessary for a homicide to be murder in the sense of killing someone is murder, killing someone is homicide, And those two things are different. And uh, if you want to look it up and get into the difference between homicide and murder, you can do so. Um, I think the basic difference, um, if I can explain it in my own language, is homicide is a person kills another person. Murder is a homicide that is illegally killing another person. So, you know, to use an example, if a soldier in a combat situation kills a combatant, an opponent, that is not murder, right? That's a the soldier doing what the soldier does, and that is the difference between homicide versus murder. So, The subject topic is homicide, not murder. I was 17 months old when my mother's father, my maternal grandfather, uh, he was a man of, uh, he was 46 years of age. At that point, 46, had not yet turned 50. He shot his wife, my mother's mother. She was age 41 at the time of her death. And as I said, I was uh, 17 months old at the time. So you have three people involved in thus far, in what I'm explaining to you, my grandfather, age 46, shot and killed his wife, age 41, and I, the grandchild, was only 17 months of age at that time. I do not remember either my grandfather or my grandmother. I mean, you don't develop memories in the sense of being able to go back into your, you know, in your mind and say, oh yeah, I remember so-and-so, they were a favorite of mine, or I remember such and such an event that happened and I remember being, I felt good about that event. I don't have any of that because I was 17 months old and you don't have, I don't think at that age, the ability to process Memories, or retained memories, anyway. Um, So, grandfather on my mother's side, her father, age 46, shot and killed his wife, her mother, my mom's mother. Shoot, the wife was 41. I was 17 months old. Um, My mother was 22 years of age at that time. She was married to my father, who was 23 years of age at that time. And they had been married a couple of years, I think, maybe more than a couple of years. And they lived on their own. They had, you know, their own life, their own house, their own home. And me, the child, I was 17 months old. So, it, can you imagine what? It was like for a 22-year-old 22 22 year woman, my mother, to find out that her father shot and killed her mother. You know, and that's traumatic enough. But then him taking his own life shortly after killing his wife added to the emotional impact And I guess you could say that added to to the legal impact as well. So maternal grandfather, age 46, shot and killed his wife, age 41, and then shot himself as well. They both died in the kitchen of their home. Um, The weapon was a shotgun. Their bodies were found by... I mentioned my mother was 22, was married to my father, age 23. They did not live in the same house. They were in uh, miles and miles away in their own home. But still living in the house where this terrible thing happened were two children. One was age 13 and the other was age 11. And they walked into the kitchen in their house and they found their parents dead from unspeakably violent, an unspeakably violent way to die. And can you just imagine what an age 13-year-old boy and an age 11-year-old girl, what was, what was their reaction? You can You don't really need to even think about it. You know that their reaction was shock and, uh, probably hysterical crying. Um, the two of them notified their sister, my mother, and she and my father, being the adults, um, took over, if you will, um. The the two children, age 13, a boy, and a girl age 11, became uh, under the legal guardianship of my mother, their, their sister. They became under the legal guardianship of my mother and her husband. She was 22, my mother, and my father, as I said, was 23. So they had one child, me. I was 17 months old. And then immediately they had to take on two um, youngsters, a boy aged 13 and a girl age 11. And the boy and the girl lived with my parents under the same roof um, until they reached adulthood. Um, But this story is about, and it's not even a story, this is true life. This is about homicide. What is it that happens in a family when a homicide takes place, such as the one I described? Well, I can tell you what happens. At least one possible thing that happens is the... The survivors, myself, my mother, my father, and the two children, who incidentally are my aunt and uncle, um, the boy age 13, the girl age 11, all of us had to um, process what happened. And I'm too young at the time, you know, no memories at all of what happened uh, at all. So... I had no burden to carry forward from that particular evening. Compared to what burden my uncle, who was 13, and my aunt, who was 11, had to carry forward, they found the bodies of their parents really a horrible thing. And then my mother, age 22, and my father, age 23, took the two young children in. Uh, and became their legal guardians um, right away. So we went from a household of just me and my mother and father to a household of me, my mother and father, and aunt and uncle, age 13 and age 11. And we all lived together under the same roof. And we shared uh, many things in common, but I think the most important of which is... uh, This homicide affected all of us. I was too young to remember it, but I later learned details, and I will get to that in a second. But this particular homicide affected all of us in ways that you may not be able to understand unless you have been there, like I was there, or like my aunt and uncle were there, and like my mother and father had to deal with. So I'm going to talk about the aftermath. The, uh, the reality is my grandfather was at age 46, a very angry person. I don't know anything about him from personal experience because I was too young, uh, but I have found after his death many things about him and one of them was that he had uh, anger issues as we would say in the 21st century Um, anger issues he was very angry and he also had a reliance upon alcohol um, maybe to help ease the pain of the anger i don't know who knows but you usually when you add the two together an angry person and alcohol you get trouble and I would say that's probably at the root of all of his troubles in life. Everything ended on that night where he killed his wife and then killed himself. But what led up to it was a lot of anger that was lubricated by his use of alcohol. And what was he angry about? Why Why would he kill his wife? Usually... When you get into looking in, you know, beneath the surface of a so-called domestic dispute, quote-unquote, usually there's something that has triggered um, an incident. And in this instance, the nearest that anyone could find for what triggered this terrible thing was that my grandfather believed that his wife was cheating on him, that she had been unfaithful to him and had sex with other men, not himself, and that made him very angry, and he killed her with a shotgun. And then he killed himself with the same shotgun. So, I guess it would be accurate to say anger issues lubricated by alcohol and a jealousy, uh, suspicion only, that his wife had been having sex with other men. And whether she was or not, I have no way to know. No one deserves to die like that, uh, even if they are having uh, extramarital relations. No one deserves to die like that. So that's the official story. Uh, a man suspects his wife is unfaithful, he's an angry man, mm-hmm. he's a drunk, and he kills his wife because he thought she was unfaithful. And then he kills himself. Now, to, to back up the story, there's evidence that my grandfather talked about feeling troubled emotionally emotionally. Feeling out of out of control, feeling that he could not contain his anger, he told his brother, who was an older gentleman, older than him, uh, in advance of this terrible night. He told his brother that he was uh, likely to do something bad, you know, and I'm not sure of the exact words because I wasn't there and I don't know if it's important, what the exact words might have been. But my grandfather did give a warning to his brother, telling his brother that he thought he might do something bad, something terrible. And, well, he did. He shot his wife and then shot himself. So there was a forewarning, even though it wasn't acted upon by my um, The brother of my grandfather didn't take any action. Um, And then after the fact came out, uh, what came out was that my grandfather had confided in his brother, older brother, that he might do something terrible, and he did. So, you know, nobody after the fact was surprised. That night, there was certainly a lot of tremendous shock through the community, that this terrible thing had happened, especially given the circumstances of the two young children, age 13 and 11, finding the bodies of their parents on the kitchen floor kind of a thing. So there was a lot of shock and dismay at what happened. But then after the words came out that my grandfather had in fact talked to his older brother about worrying that he might do something terrible, something bad. Well, people began to add add things up and began, I think, in retrospect, to understand. So what does all this have to do with anything? If you are in a family and something like this happens, something like this meaning a homicide in your family, it is going to have damaging impact upon your family. That is a truism. Um, I don't know of anyone who would dispute the validity of that statement. If you're in a family that has to endure a homicide, there will be damage brought to the family. And I can speak to the damage in my family as being emotional. My mother and father concealed what happened. As I said already, I was 17 months old, too young to know from personal memory what happened. So I was uh, sheltered, if you will, by both my mother and my father, who, in effect, well, in effect, they lied to me about how my grandparents died. I'm not sure how old I was when I first began to put two and two together, but every uh, Memorial Day in my family, the tradition was to go to the cemetery where my grandfather and grandmother were buried to put flowers on their gravesite. And I remember as a child, going to the cemetery every Memorial Day to visit the gravesite of my grandfather and my grandmother and to watch my mother and father put flowers on the gravesite. And I don't, as I said, I don't know what age I was at, but I finally, I had reached the age where I was not only reading you know, learned how to read, but to do the math, if you if you look at their uh, tombstone at the gravesite, you will see that they died on the same exact day in the same exact year. Um, and at, at one point, I don't know again why that would have caught my eye, because you know, what does a child know about dates on Carved into a rock, at a cemetery. You know what? What could a child possibly know? But this child noticed, and this child, me, asked my mother, "How did they die on the same day? What happened? Tell me what happened." And the story I was told by my mother first, and when I talked. Separately to my father, he, he backed up everything that my mother had told me. And what I was told was they were killed in an automobile accident. And that explains how they died on the exact same date and the exact same year. They died together in an automobile accident in which they were killed. That was the story my mother told me. That was the story that my father insisted to me was true. Well, (laughs) it was a lie. They did not die together on the same day, in the same year, in the same vehicle. They weren't in a vehicle at all. They were in their own kitchen. And he shot her. And then he shot himself. That's how they died on the same date in the same year. No automobile accident happened. And that was the convenient, convenient for my mother, convenient for my father. That was the convenient story they told me as I was growing up, you know, from uh, the age of 17 months on until i found out the truth and i did find out the truth how did i find out the truth well it was uh a very shocking discovery i don't remember the date they died the date the same date same year i can't tell you right now what that was but i went to the cemetery i was uh Nineteen years of age now, uh, I went to the cemetery where they were laid to rest, and I wrote down on a piece of paper the date of death. And then I went into a library where I could find um, records. Microfilm was, not today, but was used as a way to preserve records historical records pictures text so forth microfilm was a moving part it was a film that was on spools that were made out of metal and you had to move the film through a projector a viewer from one spool to another and you cranked it or they had mechanized projectors as well but I remember this particular microfilm reader was... uh, I had to crank a crank, turn a device to move the film across the projector so I could see what was on the uh, microfilm. And I found a a recording or uh, I found a record of a newspaper from my hometown... I went to the date that I had written down on a piece of paper from the cemetery. Went to the date, cranked through the microphone, crank, 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 through, through, through. Finally arrived at the date, and there on the front page in the upper left corner of my local newspaper, there was a story about how my grandfather and grandmother really died not involving an automobile accident and there was a picture a photograph of a law enforcement officer whether he I don't know the rank but he was like a sheriff deputy Um, it wasn't city police I know that much now but let's say he was a sheriff a deputy sheriff Uh, Which means you can be appointed or elected. But this guy, this adult, who was in the picture on the front page of my hometown newspaper, I already knew. He was my automobile insurance guy. So imagine I see a photograph of this man. I'm 19 years of age. The man is... uh, 30 40 I don't know how old he was I knew him I recognized his face I saw his name he was my automobile insurance agent but (laughs) he was a deputy sheriff in the picture so I don't know how he became an insurance guy where he had previously been a deputy sheriff but there is this guy holding the murder weapon. And I believe they called it that in the caption of the photograph. You know, you don't usually say the homicide weapon. Usually it's murder weapon. Those two words go together. And it was a shotgun that this gentleman held up for a staged photograph that ended up on the front page, upper left corner of my local newspaper. And I will never forget that moment. You know, when you go into shock over something that you see with your own eyes, there's a time factor. You know, you first have to see it, cranking through the microwave, crank, 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 through, through, through. There I am getting to the date. Find the picture of this guy holding a shotgun. And then I saw his face, I saw his name, saw he was a deputy sheriff. And he was holding up, in a staged photograph, this weapon that my grandfather had used to kill his wife and himself. Well, how did I react? I I almost lost consciousness. I know I did not, because nothing is missing in, in the memory of all that. But I was seated at this projector uh, and... I felt a uh, sudden disorientation, like, no, no, in denial immediately, this cannot be, this didn't happen, how does this, why is this guy holding a shotgun, this guy who's my automobile insurance guy, holding a shotgun, and the photo says, My grandfather shot his wife and then shot himself with that murder weapon, as the caption said. Well, I was shocked and dismayed. I immediately denied the possibility that this could have happened. The way that we protect ourselves emotionally Mm -hmm. is that we deny things. Uh, You see something, you witness something awful, Even if it's second-hand like this was, I'm reading an account, a newspaper account, of how my grandfather really died and how my grandfather really shot his wife with a shotgun that this automobile insurance agent is holding up in a staged photograph. And the caption reads, Murder Weapon. Well, into denial immediately uh i continued reading the front page story the article and there were details in there that taught me to accept what i was reading the details were too horrific to have been made up I, i didn't for a minute think oh this is fake news We didn't use words together like that. Um, But I was in shock, I was in denial, and yet I I had to accept what I was reading as the truth, at least as reported in the local newspaper. They went into some detail that nowadays I don't believe they would have ever gotten into, like what was my grandfather wearing? What clothing? What difference does it make? What clothing he was wearing? What clothing my grandmother was wearing? Again, what difference does it make? I was angry next, you know, first shock, then if there's a sequence, all this happens rapidly, rapidly. So I went from shock to denial to anger. I never got to the bargaining, oh, please, God, make this not be true, and I will go to Mass every day. I never did any of that. Uh, I didn't make a bargain with anyone. Um, I, I moved quickly to acceptance, where I had to face the music that, uh, you know, I am reading a newspaper account that I trusted as true because it was my automobile insurance agent holding a shotgun in a staged photograph that the newspaper caption said was the murder weapon. I turned, I put the microfilm away and I left the library. Um, I was not living at home with my parents at the time. And I was 19, so I was legally, I was of the legal age, you know. And I was not living at home under their roof. So I had to go to their home. And I did. I went to their home. (laughs) And over dinner, I uh, told them the story of how I had gone to look up the death date uh, in a newspaper article. Uh, My mother and father were chain smokers, and they just filled the room with cigarette smoke as they nervously sat there. Uh, my mother was in tears early in this conversation I had, and my father was didn't make eye contact with me, and they just kept smoking, 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 smoking. The room was filled with cigarette smoke. Why did you lie to me? I wanted to know. Why? And they could not answer. The way they explained things to me was, well, we wanted to protect you. You were 17 months old when this happened. And we never told you the truth because we wanted to protect you. And, you know, I look back on that claim of wanting to protect me, quote-unquote, and I wonder what was going through their minds. My parents are no longer living, uh, so I can't ask them any questions about any of this today because they are no longer living. But what is it that I can't imagine, what is it they were trying to protect me from. The first thing I thought of was, well, maybe they thought that as a school child, I would be beaten up or bullied by people at school because they found out my grandfather killed his wife and himself. You know, and I suppose if you were going to write a story about the ills that a child in school suffers well you know certainly is possible in the realm of in the scheme of things it is possible for a school child to be bullied and even beaten up by schoolmates because of something like this that the the fellow school kids would never understand i'm a grown ass man <laughs> Now and I don't understand. So how 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 could you expect a school child to understand? Why would a guy, age forty six, shoot his wife, age forty one, with a shotgun, kill her, and then shoot himself? Why? It's, it just doesn't it doesn't make any sense. So I can understand how school kids might respond in in. I guess, go directly to violence, first bullying and then violence. But I don't know, you know, a a child hearing this in the schoolyard might say, wow, that's kind of spooky, and maybe that's kind of cool, like, wow, you had a cool grandfather, he was a murderer. I never heard those words. But emotionally, I do not have any experience with being bullied at any point, at any age in my life, by anyone over what happened, that, what my grandfather did, and the crime, crimes, plural, that he committed. I have no recollection of any uh, dialogue between myself and any other person about those crimes. So if my parents were trying to protect me from the responses of uh, fellow citizens in society, so to speak, they didn't have to because that never happened. I discovered on my own at the age of 19 what the truth was. And the lie that my parents had told me could no longer be upheld. It was over the lie was over the truth was now known to me and both my parents knew that i knew that they had lied and that they had chosen to lie automobile accident horrible thing they both both the grandparents uh, died in the automobile accident no that's a lie so what was what was it that they were really protecting or attempting to protect me from. And you may have figured this out already. But I will tell you. They were trying to protect me from shame. Shame is what they were trying to protect me from. And why? Why shame? You know? Well, my mother was... uh, She ended up stuck in shame All of her life, from the moment her father killed her mother and then himself, my mother was stuck in shame from that day forward. And she never, ever, ever got out of it. She never got through it. She never went to psychological counseling to deal with it, quote-unquote. How did she deal with it? Well... She used alcoholic beverages just like her father had done. As the cliche goes, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And so my mother became dependent upon alcoholic beverages in ways that I presume are very similar, if not identical, to that of her father. Um, my mother didn't have anger. Uh, in the violent sense, uh, I never saw her injure anyone or herself out of anger in the, uh, during the use or thereafter the use of alcoholic beverages. So I don't think she became exactly the same as her father, but she did in the sense of reliance, dependence, addiction to alcoholic drink. As her father had taught her. Well, it's more than taught her, it was passed along to her in her DNA. So she was a very shamed person. And I guess you can understand and maybe even sympathize. She had lost her father and her mother suddenly at the age of 22. She was 22. And she knew that her sister and her brother, the children that she took in uh, under legal guardianship, she knew that they had suffered greatly in the emotional sense because they found the bodies. So why wouldn't she feel shame, you know? She, She did, and she felt deep shame, and it never stopped. It never went away, no matter how many vodkas she drank. No matter how much wine she drank, the shame continued for her entire life. And she only lived a total of 66 years. Uh, So that's like 42 years from when her father did this terrible thing. She lived 42 years uh, into adulthood after that. And every one of those days of every one of those years had shame in it. So what can you expect from a mother who feels such intense shame from a homicide in her family? Well, she passed along the shame to me, her son. It was a different kind of shame though it wasn't focused on oh this man caused suffering because he killed another person and then killed himself. I didn't really feel shame about that because I first learned of it when I was already a legally a legal age adult, you know, I was 19. So I didn't I guess couldn't feel shame about what my grandfather did. I felt anger, anger, but I felt anger at having been lied to. Um, And I never trusted my parents again. I was 19. um, I never trusted them again with anything. You know, simple things like, well, what time is dinner next Saturday? I would trust them with that. But I wouldn't trust either of my parents ever again with anything important, like, how did my grandparents die on the same day and the same year? Never trust them again. And that was a very hard lesson, but it stuck. I just, that was the lesson. So the shame uh, that I mentioned, my mother passing on to me, was a specific kind of shame. It was a shame about life. It wasn't focused on, oh, this... These two crimes happened in the past. Uh, It was a shame about life and that you need to be as a person in life. You can't become too comfortable, my mother taught me. Can't become too comfortable. Can't become too trusting of anyone because they can potentially hurt you. And so she passed along a shameful caution to me, which I carried with me for many, many years. One of the elements of the shame, shameful caution involved intimacy physical intimacy and emotional intimacy. Those two things were both covered under the same umbrella of shameful caution. My mother taught me to be shamefully cautious about intimacy in the physical sense, sexual sense, and emotional sense. Three things. And they're all related, of course. I mean, they don't have to be. You don't have to have sexual contact with someone Uh, You can have physical contact, like pat someone on the back or whatever, comfort them, put your arm around their shoulder, that kind of thing. But my mother taught me shameful caution in the sense of physical intimacy and emotional intimacy. My mother taught me that. And I believe it was a direct result of the shame that she felt from having been raised by a man who killed his wife and himself at a relatively young age. I think that was the root cause of my mother's shame. And the root cause, there it is, and that uh, manifests itself in her passing on to me, her son, cautionary shame or shameful caution. Um, And I have since pushed that away. I've gotten rid of it. Um, as a gay man, it's difficult. Uh, you, you aren't going to have a fulfilling sex life if you have shame about yourself sexually. It just That's not going to happen. So just word to the wise, if you're a gay male and you feel shame about your gay male sexuality, you need to find a way to push it somewhere else out of you you know, talk to someone who's a professional mental health counselor, um, whatever. That it's very crucial. Because if you don't deal with that, if you don't deal with uh, coming to terms, let's say, with your sexual identity, you will p- potentially feel shame. And that shame will keep you from having a uh, fulfilling life, sex life, with other men. Uh, and that's important that you that you have. It is very important that you have that. So I look back on all of my life experiences, and that grandfather experience kind of overshadows everything. I have since come to terms with. Well, I'm not angry at him. I pity him for being addicted to alcohol and addicted to anger, and addicted to expressions of violence. He beat his wife, he beat my mother, you know. He beat his other children as well, physically, hands-on, touching them, beating them, hurting them. He did that. And I pity that. It, It doesn't make me angry now. He's been dead for so long, you know. But I will never forget, you know, the lessons. And one of them is, you have to become aware of what drives you emotionally in life, and you have to become mentally healthy enough to get past some of the real horrible things that may have happened to you in your life, such as homicide. And I I am an example of someone who has gotten through it. Now, you might say, well, look, you got through it, but now you do storytelling and you create images that are very violent yeah i do i am guilty of that but i don't create images of a man killing his wife with a shotgun and then killing himself i don't do that i don't think that's a good subject matter for me you know you can only imagine just by the tone of my voice why i would not deal with that as a subject for uh, storytelling or artistic expression. And yet, and yet, yes, I do create violent, dark-themed images. It isn't men doing damage, hurtful stuff to women. Never, never, never. It's always men doing hurtful stuff to other men. But that is how I create my art. I am the product, I am the grandson of a guy who committed murder. He killed his wife and he killed himself. Two crimes. It happened a very, very long time ago, but it affected me and I wanted to share it all with you in this one podcast episode where you hear my voice. Because I think it's important to Do whatever you can if you see someone who is a loved one who is addicted to alcohol, who is addicted to anger, who is addicted to violence, who beats their loved ones physically. You need to do something about that before it could progress to homicide, okay? I'm not even going to repeat that. You heard me. You know what I'm telling you is true. So that's one of the reasons I am talking about all of this with you. The other reason is that you are responsible for yourself. We are each responsible for ourselves. I am responsible for myself. Just repeat that over and over. I am responsible for myself. I am responsible for for myself. And that's the key to your success. If you constantly blame others throughout your life, oh, my mother lied to me. Oh, boo-hoo-hoo. She lied to me. Who fucking cares? I am responsible for myself. Say it again. I am responsible for myself. And that's the lesson. That's the punchline in this little episode here. Watch out for people that are violent. Watch out for people who are addicted to substances, alcohol, cannabis, cocaine, whatever. Watch out for them. Keep a close eye on them. And don't let people physically or emotionally abuse their loved ones. Because one day you may get a phone call and there'll be someone telling you, well, so-and-so just killed your loved one. You do not want that to happen. Do something first. It may be difficult, but do something first before a terrible thing happens because of homicide. And that's all. Thank you for listening. find out more about this topic, go online to the website taboo Truths and com. that's taboo truths and com. taboo truths and tales is hosted by Madeira de souza that's me thank you